Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today and Around the Coin, I interviewed Bryce Dini, the founder and CEO of Equipify. Bryce is modernizing the way consumers interact with their money. Effectively, Equipify is helping banks and credit unions deliver experiences that help foster growth and engagement with new customers, specifically around buy now, pay later. So they are offering a similar type of service to, say, a Klarna or in a firm, but they're allowing banks and credit unions to offer that as well. So kind of a competitive threat from the other direction, which is really exciting and a good thing for end users. Bryce is incredibly knowledgeable about the payment industry. He spent his entire life working in payments uh, and through credit unions and banks. So we learned a lot about what's going on underneath the hood. And he dropped in a few other suggested companies to check out, which I'll let you dive in and hear more about those. Our show today is sponsored by Otter Labs. If you check out hireotter.com, you can find software developers full-time, long-term that are available to work with fast-growing startups. So if you're struggling to hire and want to bring on people remotely down in South America, integrated into the team, Equally as everyone else, check out hireotter.com. There's over 1,300 developers in the community that are ready, able, willing, and excited to work. So without further ado, I bring you Bryce Dini. All right, my man, Bryce. Well, here we are officially live. Not that much different than pre-show. Why don't we kick this off? I'd love to hear from you how you got interested, how you got interested in what you're working on at Equipify, uh, maybe articulate what the company does and what the initial moments of conception were and and welcome. I'm excited to dive in with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, So so Equipify, we're a buy now, pay later platform uh, built for primary financial institutions to adopt and white label for their consumers. So uh, that's primarily credit unions and banks in the U.S., uh, my background, it's it's such a vertical within a vertical. So people are always like, how did you choose that? Um, and my background actually, previously, I was head of product and head of sales for a fintech company. We built B2B payment applications on top of like Shopify, WooCommerce, Magento, flowing into accounting systems. Uh, we sold that to a couple thousand businesses and then we ended up getting acquired in 2019. And for the last couple of years, ironically, I took like a pretty big uh, career shift and I wanted to, I really knew the acquiring space of payments, but I didn't know the issuing space. So I ended up taking an executive role overseeing payment products at a credit union. Um, Mm. So I I live in Scottsdale, but it's for Alaska, USA, Federal Credit Union. They're a $10 billion asset financial institution based out of Anchorage and um, really awesome experience there. And while helping them basically update their payment infrastructure stack, I started to learn that Buy Now Pay Later uh, was being massively adopted by our membership, like our cardholders, but we didn't have a product to offer them. So I started Mm -hmm. talking to other payment execs at other financial institutions, and turns out they were seeing the same thing. There wasn't a good product in the market. So started getting together with some of my friends who are now my co-founders and we built uh, this platform. I love it. That feels like a very straightforward launch. You know, you're working in a company, there's a problem in the company, you verify it, validate it, and then go out and start it. 
Uh, I, I'm sure it wasn't as straightforward <clears throat> as that. You know, I'm sure there's... Yeah, it was that the clean. There was no yeah, pivots whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you get the idea on a Monday and by Friday, like, all right, guys, I'm going to go off exactly. and start this business and next week you raise money. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm curious on the Alaska, just set the set the the context, a $10 billion credit union mm-hmm. out of Alaska. What is this company, what, what do company, this company in particular, but representative of other credit unions, what are they doing exactly? What, I, I mean, for many people, they're not exposed to these, th- these kinds of businesses. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so about 70% of America is actually a member at a credit union. Uh, a lot of them don't really, wow. a lot of them really don't understand what that means because their exposure to the credit union was likely a auto loan. So you walked into a dealership, you bought a Honda, and the best APR deal on a 60 or 72-month loan was from a NASA Federal Credit Union or Vistar Credit Union or Alaska USA Federal Credit Union, and that's who underwrote your loan. You became a member of that credit union almost by default. It's one of the documents you signed in the dealership. They put $5 in the savings account to make you a member, and then now you have their mobile app likely downloaded on your phone just because you're making your auto payment. Uh, so that's that's like one example, uh, but it works the same on mortgages and HELOCs and credit cards, personal loans. Um, now, with that said, more than half of those members, so uh, millions of Americans actually utilize a credit unit for their primary checking account as well, right? So you have like your big banks, US Bank, B of A, Chase, Wells Fargo, uh, but then you have literally thousands of community banks, regional banks, and credit unions. More than half of America, primarily banks at one of these smaller institutions. So hmm. what I did at Alaska, and Alaska has about 700,000 members, uh, which ironically is actually slightly greater than the population of Alaska. Um, are, those, are, are those paying members? <clears throat> uh, you know, a bank, I don't think, calls them members. They say customers, customers. but yeah. a member implies, yeah, do they pay to be into a credit union? No, so a credit union is actually a, a, like a not-for-profit uh, organization that, like if you go back literally 100 years, the reason why Alaska USA exists is because there was a military base on one, on one of the islands before Alaska was even a state. This is like 73 years ago. Uh, and they didn't have access to credit, to loans. So uh, a few Air Force uh, members p- pooled their money together and built their own bank, a credit unit. That way they could lend against their own deposits and build houses and get auto loans before that was like an e-commerce thing, right? Uh, so that's actually a, a very similar origin story. So all it means to be a member of a credit union is you actually own a share of the credit union that you're part of. So there is no stakeholders or shareholders on top of a credit union. The board of directors at a credit union is actually a um, like a volunteer group. They're not paid. Uh, and then at a very large credit union like Alaska USA that has over $10 billion in assets, you know, we had 1,800 plus employees, uh, you know, 70 branches spread across four states. But every member who's a part of that is actually technically a shareholder and has voting rights within the credit unit. So it doesn't mm, cost so money. I, you just join. And if I got the Honda, if I bought the Honda car and I get the loan, that makes me a member because I'm, I, in that case, how would I own or would I be a member in that case? Yeah. So yeah, own a piece uh, of the credit union. it's kind of a weird nuance in the U.S., um, so like in that case, you're considered like an indirect auto member, uh, mm. but they qualified you based on either where you work, where you live, where you worship, right? So they have like all these field of memberships. So I live in Scottsdale in Maricopa County in, in Arizona. So if somebody goes to a local dealership and they end up getting a, a loan from Alaska USA, Federal Credit Union, if they live within this county, Alaska USA will actually put $5 in a savings account on your behalf to make you a member. That way they can lend you the $30,000 for the car that you're financing. Hmm. Interesting. That is kind of a twist. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I I can see how it evolved maybe. (laughs) Oh yeah. And and all those rules are finally starting to change. Uh, the, the doors are opening up. There's a lot of 
like infighting between banks and credit unions, right? Because credit unions have some pretty significant advantages. Um, they don't have to pay taxes on the profits that they earn. Um, they don't have to answer to shareholders. And they're, but, but the drawback of a credit union versus a bank is a credit union has a very limited field of membership. So if you're mm-hmm. living in Arkansas and Alaska, USA doesn't have field of membership there, uh, they would have to find some like really strange loopholes to make you a member, if that makes sense. I think of the credit unions, like you say, as being limited by the geography. Is that something that's liable to change? Is that a, that's not a technical constraint. Is that a legal constraint? Uh, yeah, it's a legal constraint. Um, you know, there's governing bodies, the NCUA. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I know that there's been a lot of chatter about different credit unions popping up that want to serve maybe a completely different subset of community versus just uh, like a region, right? So like maybe it's a black-owned credit union or a uh, LATAM-owned credit union or, right? So there's all these different field of memberships, uh, a, a ton of these credit unions. And there's over 5,000 in the U.S., by the way. A lot of these credit unions are actually tied to a place of work as well. Mm. So like there is a, like a GE or a Honda, there's a Honda Federal Credit Union. And if you're an employee at Honda, you could live in probably any of the 50 states or like Navy Federal right? Navy Federal has yeah. members all across the planet. Um, so field of membership is kind of like a dynamic, fluid thing that is constantly evolving. And I do think that now that we're in the internet age, I do think that a lot of those different fields of memberships are going to keep opening up. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you work remotely, then your place of work is everywhere. Exactly. So you're technically, you could be doing business in any state. And if the major categorical difference between banks and credit unions is, is unions are nonprofit, so don't, you know, have tax advantages, I would think that given enough time, then that's just going to become bigger than banks and there's consolidation. I have to imagine consolidation happens both on banks and credit unions because of the internet, because I don't care where my bank is and my bank really shouldn't care where I am if I'm going to buy a Honda and get a loan. So once that happens, then it's like, is there any relevant to, relevancy to the geography at all? Or are we just dealing with kind of legacy rules at that point? Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the type of institution and who they serve. You know, there are hundreds of institutions that are designated for low income, right? So mm. if somebody is low income living in Phoenix, they don't have a car, maybe they're making minimum wage or out of, <coughs> out of work right now, having direct access to a branch where they can access their money uh, free. You know, I, I think that they, there will always be use cases where location does matter in financial services, especially like if you want to go talk to a banker and get help, whether it be from insurance or investments or how to save money better. Um, but no, you're right. The democratization of all things, meaning, you know, access to information, access to money, money becoming more digitized, which is something that I literally was hired by the financial institution to help them on. Um, you know, these things will continue to force consolidation and credit unions and banks are constantly merging and and getting acquired. And they're getting acquired and merging at a much faster pace than new banks are popping up, um, mm. right? So we all hear about like the the neobanks, right? The chimes, money lines in the world and, um banks are merging at a faster pace than new neobanks are being stood up. So today there's over 9,000 combined credit unions and banks in the United States. Uh, like not to make a wild prediction, but I do think in the next 10 years that that number is going to shrink probably by like a thousand would be my assumption. That's it. I'd almost think more over 10 years, 9,000. That's still so many. God, that, and I have to imagine that it long tails, right? So the vast majority of those are, what would be a small credit union, I guess, in terms of the uh, amount well, I, of money I can give the... you a bunch of examples. So, yeah. you know, like Lincoln Savings Bank in Iowa. Um, you know, what makes them unique is one, they're in Iowa. So if you're a farmer and you need uh, a large loan, like agricultural loan, like you're not mm-hmm. going to money lion or chime for an ag loan and you're you're probably not even going to chase right because chase doesn't know i'm I'm not saying chase calling them out in particular but they probably don't know how to underwrite 
an ag loan in Des Moines. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah. so there, there are very niche use cases that these community banks and credit unions serve, like why high in uh in Wyoming. Like why high is underwriting um like tractor loans and mm. uh you know land land agreements for for mm. commercial and residential de- development. So there will always be some type of community underwriting that is specific to that like county or region or state that that I, I mm. don't think uh, some of these larger players or even like neobank players uh, will want to focus on primarily mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. You know, and, and we're it's a big country right there there's thousands of communities like that that uh, having a local bank actually does, help that local community more than just a, a larger institution dropping a, a few branches. Yeah. So the when you say they the local bank or the local credit union has a unique ability to underwrite that loan, in the case of like an ag loan, mm-hmm. would that be would that be equivalent to saying that there's some both a financial model about the historical loans for this type of person, but also just the knowing what questions to ask. You know, I recently got a car loan uh, and a car loan is pretty straightforward compared to say a mortgage where a mortgage, they're asking you bank statements, pay pay statements, tax history. And presumably they're taking out all all this data, a lot of data, and they're putting it all together and saying, okay, can we give a loan or not? Uh, The questions to ask matter. You know, that's kind of everything. And then it's the financial model. So in the case of like an agricultural (laughs) loan, Chase Bank, as you mentioned, they wouldn't know what questions to ask. Like, what would you even ask? Like, how how big is your farm? How much yeah. yield can you make with your how many your years, corn? Like, these are the how many years are, yeah. per per stock? Yeah, I, I right, I'm right. Not, I'm not a commercial underwriter, so I I don't know that answer. But uh, I do know that banks who aren't from those areas purposely don't underwrite loans in those areas, and they don't know how to like collateralize those and underwrite them based mm-hmm. off of whatever parameters are required for a cornfield. You know, uh, it's just, it's yeah, very you could think of them as writing their investors, right? I mean, so an investor has to be knowledgeable about the space, right? To be, to be, to invest, which is to make a loan, you have to have some insight as to what you're doing. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to, and make it bad investments and those aren't going to come back. Yeah, I mean, even on the yeah. even on like residential mortgages, right? Like, I I'm a big fan of Zillow. I do like their platform as a consumer, right? And but living here in Maricopa County, they bought up thousands and thousands of homes in a market that is, um, I would say, pretty saturated and can't build fast enough for the demand of people moving into the state, right? So valuations are going through the roof, just like they did 15 years ago. And you have this e you know e commerce data-driven company coming in and kind of dominating the space and then they exited the space within two years, right? And I've yet to meet a community bank or a credit union in Maricopa County that like overextended themselves in this market because they're mm-hmm. from here. They know the market. They know the neighborhoods extremely well. Um, and not to say that Zillow is like the perfect use case, but I, I do think that there's like some things you can extrapolate from that and apply that to a town like Boise or Casper, Wyoming, or, you know, and and say, is the internet going to take over that market? Or is there some fundamental abilities from a local underwriter and investor and banker to say, I I know this market better than anybody else. So I actually know which loans to underwrite and how to price them accordingly. Uh, And then you also have like that consumer in that town, who do they want to buy from? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's actually what drives the market um, is, is the consumer demand. And if that consumer wants to be able to walk in and talk to Jim at Y High Credit Union and say, hey, Jim, I know my father's land was underwritten by you and I want to underwrite my, my land with you as well. It's just, it's just a different, it's much different than being like here in Phoenix or in Seattle or Portland, yeah. Um, yeah. underwriting yeah. a big city. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So in the case of Zillow, did they end up selling those properties? They bought, they purchased those properties with the cash they had and then... Yeah, the last I saw was they were auctioning them off in like a, almost like a trunch. Um, like, yeah, uh, billions that's of dollars. That's crazy. Real I, I heard, I, I caught drift of this story, but I didn't dive deep into it. Do you know if Zillow just had this program of buying and selling homes <laughs> with effectively using the data set they had? And then they killed that program 
probably for this reason, right? They didn't have the local insight or have the ability to make good buying decisions. Um, it sounds like a major loss. I, I Did it affect the area much? Do you know? Uh, no. I mean, it, yeah. this all happened during COVID and yeah. like the mass flock of people moving to Phoenix uh, still yeah. today. Uh, like I bought my home a few years back and it's more than doubled in value in just you know a short amount of years. Um, Phoenix is still, I think we're the second fastest growing city in the U.S. right now. Um, so like here it didn't affect it, but I could imagine if like if I lived in a small town and an e-com company came in and did that same thing, right? Bought up a few percent of all homes on yeah. the market and then exited in, in a fire sale. Like I could see that kind of crushing a small economy, but Phoenix is big enough to where it didn't really affect it. Yeah. What do you think Phoenix's growth is due to? Proximity to California and low taxes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can look at Phoenix and Vegas and <laughs> yeah, yeah, Salt Lake and Denver and Austin and Nashville, like all, all these towns that are continuously growing. Um, yeah, like the local governments have done a good job providing some benefit to some of the larger companies like, you know, Google has moved here and they're, now they're building mm-hmm. on the Lucid cars here. And so like there's a lot of like larger infrastructure coming in. But mm-hmm. Phoenix um, primarily is like, data centers and it's the operational and IT and engineering infrastructure of the banking world. So mm. companies like PayPal, Silicon Valley Bank, American Express, uh, Zelle, which is actually early warning. So all these like infrastructure technology players in the payment space all either have their headquarters here now or have moved all their operational and IT uh, people here. So as those companies mm. continue to grow, right, even though they're based out of Silicon Valley or LA or New York, they actually have more employees in Phoenix than the other uh, coastal cities. Yeah, I imagine big enough city where you can attract talent, get them to move there. Inexpensive housing. There's not a geographical, physical limitation. It's not like you have an ocean consuming half the physical land space. Uh, like I always wonder, LA. I mean, so many cities are built right in the water, but you just yeah. you 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 know, if you picture if downtown is on the beach, then literally, if you picture a circle, you only have half the available space to build on. So, yeah. So Phoenix doesn't have that constraint. Phoenix is a giant circle too, by the way. Like, I don't know. People don't really realize the sprawling nature of Maricopa County. We got, I think, right around 5 million people and you can still drive 30 miles in any direction. It's just, it's desert and flat. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. I love desert. As long as it doesn't get too hot. As long as it's not like 120 degrees out. I can't promise you that. plus. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's brutal. Uh, so but I want to talk about Equipify uh, for a second. So buy now, pay later. Why do, why do you think this concept is all of a sudden, say in 2020, maybe 2018, 2019, 2020? It feels like this is when uh, companies like Klarna, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I know. I can't remember, recall some others off the top of my head. But I know this is kind of a space that's uh, been heating up for a while. Why now? Did something change in the technologically or regulatory wise? Or was it just, I don't know. I mean, do you see kind of macro effects that led to buy now, pay later concepts being popular? Yeah. I mean, buy now, pay later um, in parts of Europe and in Australia have been around actually for quite a long time. People don't realize how old Klarna actually is. Uh, but in the U.S., it's been a pretty recent phenomenon. Like Max Levchin, the founder of Affirm, was a, one of the PayPal guys. And Affirm has been around for a number of years. Um, but it was really the adoption of the major retailers is when it started to pick up more national attention. Like you've mm-hmm. been able to buy a Peloton using Buy Now, Pay Later for several years now. But then all of a sudden the pandemic hit Right. So now that shifted billions and billions of dollars of monthly spend from physical retail to online. And all of a sudden, now that companies like Peloton, I'm just using that as an example, their sales went through the roof. And the majority of these consumers were actually using buy now, pay later to buy that very expensive bike. And now you have all of the other retailers saying, well, if it worked for them, we're willing to adopt it. And it kind of created the snowball effect to where once 
you know, a, a retailer like Target.com says, we're going to adopt it. Now Walmart has to adopt it. And now Amazon is adopting it, right? So now that Amazon adopts it, now all the small retailers are like, well, we have to do this too, or else mm-hmm. we're, we're going to be left out, right? So there, there's just kind of been the snowball effect based on the pandemic and the shift to e-commerce that is kind of uh, sped up like a five-year plan into an 18-month plan for for the buy now pay later market, mm. um, you know, and you also have some major payments companies getting into the space in the last two years. Like PayPal launched their theirs about two years ago. They did a couple of POCs, and then just this last year on Black Friday, they had 400 percent increase in usage, uh, and they were already a top four buy now pay later company in the U.S. So most people don't think of PayPal as a BNPL player, right? You hear like Affirm and Afterpay and Klarna. Um, but PayPal is a little bit more like a super app that said, hey, there's a trend here. We're going to adopt and offer BNPL ourselves. And then all of a sudden, overnight, they're a top four global player in this space. Mm-hmm. And that's actually wow. like Equipified. That That's our entire thesis of why we started this company is we believe buy now, pay later is going to be fully democratized, just like all other consumer financing options, right? We were talking about like auto loans and mortgages and HELOCs mm-hmm. and credit cards. Um, I firmly believe that every financial institution that offers checking accounts and savings accounts is also going to offer f- like fractional lending, which is really what buy now, pay later is. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Fra- um fractional lending. So the lender, say in the case of PayPal or you guys, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe it works slightly different. The capital itself to pay the merchant for the product, does that come from, is it is the model all the same where it will come from you guys or will it come from, uh, in the case of PayPal, will they pay the merchant directly full price for the Peloton and then effectively create a, a micro loan for <clears throat> me if I'm purchasing the Peloton? Yeah, so PayPal will pay the merchant the full amount less their fee up front. Right. right? So if PayPal's fee is, let's say, 6% to the merchant and it's a $1,000 item, PayPal is going to keep 6% of that retail up front, pay the merchant the the balance, and then is that how much their fee is? <clears throat> That's so high. Yeah. So w- what's really interesting about buy now pay later is the merchant fee. Like if you go to rei.com and you're going to click a Klarna button or an Afterpay button, likely REI is paying like five point nine nine percent plus thirty cents for that transaction. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus if you were to click like and type in your debit card or credit card, and let's say they're using Stripe they would pay like 2.9%. So the merchant fee is actually double what a standard card fee is. The difference is that buy now, pay later, theoretically is supposed to increase the average ticket about 18%. Um, And kind of the secret sauce to buy now, pay later that a credit card company is not able to do is now that you have our app downloaded in your wallet, we can actually drive you back to that merchant again by by integrated shopping inside of our mobile app. Right. So mm. is this, is this Equipify specifically or more? No, this model is not pay later in general. Yeah. I mean, it, and none of this I'm talking about our company at all. It's just kind of the industry. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like I obviously have accounts with like Klarna and Affirm and Afterpay and Sezzle and Uplift and Tidbit and QuadPay, OpenPay. There's so many different vendors out there that offer BNPL to consumers. Um, you can download any of their apps, create an account and you can shop at any major retailer from their mobile app, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you shop directly through like a Klarna mobile app and you buy something from Sephora, Klarna can actually charge Sephora upwards of 18% for that transaction. Holy shit, that's crazy. Yeah, versus if you were to go to Sephora.com and then click the Klarna button as a a shopper, now now, uh, Sephora's only gonna pay 6%. That's still so high, though. How how can they charge that much? <clears throat> why would why would Sephora are we are the merchants just pressured to offer this service because otherwise people aren't making those purchases? Like I I guess yeah. another way of asking this question is uh, is the is the number of total Pelotons sold higher because they offer buy now pay later and thus it justifies a higher fee? Uh, I, that's the theory, and, and like. <laughs> 
<laughs> theory. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of this data is not really pushed in, into the yeah. public eye. Um, so like it, in, in its basic sense, yes, right? You're driving new shoppers initially, and then you're also driving repeat shoppers. And when these shoppers do buy, they are buying more than if they were just using their card. Right. So there's like kind of three different facets there that drive more commerce. Um, what's interesting is like we're, we're banking infrastructure. So like our market position, who we go after, like we don't have an Equipify iOS app. You'll, you'll never download us. And besides watching this podcast, you, you'll probably never hear of us. Um, cause we're, we're fully white labeled for the financial institutions, but what's unique about when we were going out to raise our seed round, is the amount of investors who invest in retail brands and e-commerce brands started asking me like, hey, how are you building this? Uh, What's the plan here? Because if we're able to execute on our vision, which is basically to represent any financial institution where a consumer banks, we're able to like speed up the democratization of BNPL from all lenders, which naturally should drive down that 6%. Because now I don't have to go download a Klarna app to finance my Lululemon leggings. I can just log into online banking from any of my banks that I have an account at and do the same exact thing. So it's like we, we're kind of killing that secret sauce almost that right, you're the you're, you're, PL providers have yeah. for a number of years. Yeah, yeah, you're you're kind of offering ammunition to the uh, to the counter forces. Like the the alternative to Klarna would be to go to a credit union or a bank. But if the bank doesn't offer that solution, the buy now pay later option, then you kind of have no other option. You either use, you know, you pay up front, you use a credit card, or you don't buy it at all. Yeah, I, that's that's what I was getting at. Is uh, the these investors who represent all these retail brands, um, you know, initially BNPL that six percent is great because it's driving net new customers. But the problem is once America mass adopts BNPL and now your everyday consumer, instead of using their bank card, is now just clicking into the Klarna app to do the same exact shopping they were already going to do at that retailer. Now the retailer just has less margin, right? So it's almost um, a detriment to its own success within the retail environment. And you'll also notice that now you'll go to some of these retail, like major retail websites. A year ago, they only had one. They would like they were an afterpay retailer or an Affirm or a Klarna retailer. And now you go there and you'll see like multiple buttons. Like which one do you want to pick? Right. So uh-huh. like the the democratization has already started to happen, but at, but all of them are still like B two C mobile app um, fintech companies. And you still are not able to click a button and say, I'm going to use my existing bank debit card and I want to split up my payments over time. And that's really the technology that we're delivering. Oh, I like that. Because you're not, you're not just another option. You're not just like, okay, we'll add a fifth option here. You're now, you have a strategic advantage, right? Because you're using the, the cash on hand at the bank and working through that. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah. Good. <laughs> I think that's a that's a win-win. Consumers and merchants should both win. And you're putting pressure on the Klarna's and the uh, firms out there. Is that the right way to look at it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Klarna and Affirm will always have a huge segment to the market, like the unbanked, um, right? So if, if I don't have a checking account with money and like direct deposit going into that account where the bank using Equipify services can underwrite uh, based on like the cash flow within your checking account, right? That particular consumer likely won't get offered BNPL from their bank or credit union, uh, which mm-hmm. the Affirm and Afterpays of the world are really good at like doing third-party KYC, AML, underwriting you based on a bunch of metadata. You know, that's not really our business model or a credit union or bank's business model. They want to look at your checking account and say, is this healthy behavior within the checking account? And can we pre-decision this consumer the ability to go borrow 800 bucks on a 12-month installment plan? So it's just, it's and a much different use case. Do you think there, the, the future is both? Like, <clears throat> I would imagine that that whoever is issuing these microloans is, or loans, is going to use the metadata and my my bank history 
if they can, right? Uh, like Klarna and a firm would love to say, hey, connect to your bank and then, you know, let's do a quick audit, however they want to do that, and then either approve or reject it. Is Do you see that as being possible where you can combine the metadata approach and the, like the bank audit history approach? Yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, I, I would assume most BNPL providers are probably connecting to like an MX or a Plaid and doing like a, a mm-hmm. spot check when they're underwriting you for the first time. But they're not constantly going in and looking at like, what's your current balance? What's your 30-day average balance? Do you still have direct deposits set up with that bank? Are you still working yeah. at the same um, you know, place that's cutting your payroll uh, every two weeks? They're not looking at your cash position as a consumer right now before deciding yeah. to let you buy something from a retailer. And that's kind of our secret sauce, if you will, is we, we have yeah. that direct integration with the banking core and we're making that decision consistently before you even shop. Yeah. Do you know what they look at? Like what metadata, I'm trying to think what they could even... I, I have a pretty fun one that surprised me. Like, um, yeah. So, and I know that, you know, one of the biggest topics inside of like the four walls of the BNPL ecosystem is fraud. Uh, like trying to trick the algorithms into getting underwritten for 500 bucks so you can go buy something and then never pay it off, right? Um, and one thing I do know that they're looking at is like the age of the email that you're using to build your new account with. So the, they'll, they'll like check, okay, if I use like, you know, Bryce at gmail.com, they would see what's the age of that Gmail account. And then is that Gmail account attached to any social media profiles that also have active history? So they would like go look at my Twitter history or my LinkedIn or Facebook. They'll see that Bryce at gmail.com is attached to a Facebook account that looks legit, that has data there. And then they'll say, okay, well, on Bryce's Facebook account, he says he's an accountant at this company. But when he filled out our KYC, uh, he said he was <laughs> in sales at Honda. Right. So then they'll like they're they're looking at literally just e-com and, and online metadata to say, like, are you a real human being? And then they're trying to figure out how much money does this person likely make every month based on the job profile that we're able to pull online. And then they underwrite you based off of that. And they're using all these algorithms to determine eligibility. So it, wow. it's very cutting edge in a way, but it's also like kind of pseudoscience. It hasn't really, yeah. it, it's not um, been around in the market long enough to prove that this is a good way of underwriting. And I think it's also important to say that most of these BNPL, BNPL providers that are holding these loans, right? Like Klarna holds these loans. Um, we haven't seen them operate in like a 2008 yet. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how it all shakes out. It seems like the magic is is not telling people, like even you telling that story. It's like, well, if I'm if I'm in the business of you know uh, tricking a firm or Klarna, then yeah, okay, well, I'm just going to take that into consideration. I'll just make an account, make it match, put a high paying job title on there, and it's kind of like it only works until people know about it, kind of thing. I, I don't know if it seems like that would have such enormous gaps in the in the ability to make intelligent underwriting decisions. You know, how, how, number one, can you actually do that technically through some API where you could just hit Facebook and say, hey, how, tell me the user associated with this account and then scrape all their data and pull out their, I mean, that's gotta be just like, I don't know, it seems kind of like clunky front-end scraping <laughs> data because I can't imagine Facebook is get voluntarily giving you that through an open API. And then if you're just, I don't know how you would check the age of an email. I'm sure there's some some API you could probably find out there that does that where they're using like publicly accessible or mentioned. But it just seems like, I don't know. It seems like that's a house of cards on some level. I don't know if you can technically do all that or how they're doing it, but... Yeah, well, they have billions of dollars in cash and I'm sure they're writing millions of lines of code every day trying to figure it out. Um, What's really interesting too is the CFPB recently uh, announced that they're inquiring some of the bigger buy-not-pay-later companies in the US and it's based on two different uh, things that they want to get findings on. The first is consumers' ability to repay, meaning are they actually underwriting these in like a safe and sound way to protect consumers? And the second is data usage. Uh, how are they collecting data and 
who are they sharing the data with and, and are consumers aware of, of how they're sharing their data. So, mm. you know, pretty interested to see how that goes once they announce the findings of, if they do. Yeah. What do you think the, the say medium term, five, 10, maybe 15 year, uh, world looks like with credit? Because, I mean, we're, we're talking about whether it's a bank, credit union, um, you, anyone who's lending money to anybody, they have to use some assessment of this person. And there's a lot of rules. We're very concerned about what kind of information you're allowed or particularly not allowed to use, like uh, race or sex. I think you can use sex, but you can't use race. You can't use, uh, I don't know if it, being a veteran is one. I mean, there's certain sensitivities that uh, we've banned from taking into consideration when making the loan. What what do you think this looks like? I mean, the three major credit bureaus out there with Experian, TransUnion, I forget the last one. Uh, they, they seem incredibly vulnerable. Like they, they had a massive hack a couple of years ago sure. and millions of people's private data was exposed. Like keeping these this information in private vaults doesn't seem the way to go. It, do you see it as like decentralized, somehow layered onto crypto protocol being significant in terms of how you're maintaining your your private data, like transaction history and things that matter? Because it does, it doesn't it feel like to you that it's kind of it's it's becoming more decentralized. Even the fact that these companies are scraping Facebook, they're not hitting a credit bureau and saying, like, let's pull a credit report on Mike to buy this Peloton. They're they're trying to find other data sources out there. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they are typically doing a soft pull the first time, uh, just to make sure like you, you are who you say you are. Um, but I mean, one of the pillars of the platform we're building is cash flow underwriting using consumer data. So not to say that like TransUnion or Experian are going to become irrelevant because I think there will always be use cases where if you're underwriting a, a house, right, a, a massive amount of credit as a consumer, um, there is still value in having that hard inquiry and viewing all of the trade lines and your repayment history. Um, and like, I actually, I'm a, I'm a big believer in crypto. I just think the time frame is a lot longer than most like hardcore crypto fanatics are. And I think it's because I, I tend to be a little bit more like a realist. Um, and, and I play in the banking space and in the fintech space too. So I see like one of the credit unions that were, going to be launching with this this year actually just launched Bitcoin holdings. So you can actually convert your USD and your savings account to Ethereum or, or Bitcoin and, and hold it at your credit union. Um, so it, like th- there are so many use cases in, in the crypto and banking space, but it's also a little limited today. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like consumer data, I think the power will continue to shift to the consumer versus these large bureaus or large like mega organizations that kind of hold the keys to consumer data. Like that's why I think companies like Plaid and MX have done a phenomenal job because they like, yes, they're, they're like a new consortium or, or, or a, a new database essentially, but they are building their APIs and their user experience in a way that gives the power to that consumer to say, yes, I want to give access or permission to my financial data as a consumer to this institution, or I want to block them from accessing my data. Where today, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to block. I mean, I, I get junk mail in the time all the day. Like when we incorporated Equipify, I got like 30,000 random requests from from mm-hmm. every type of sales organization. Like, hey, we saw a Delaware C-Corp popped up. Uh, we we want to sell you something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I know it happens to consumers too. So like blockchain, there's so many use cases, but I do think the the time horizon is going to be a lot longer before financial data is fully decentralized. Yeah. How about the people on the credit union side, maybe people you used to work with in banks or credit unions, or even people you sell into now, are they... <clears throat> Are they getting it? What's the general attitude now? Say we're recording this mid-January 2022. Are they skeptical, largely, um, cautiously optimistic about crypto? Where do you think the attitude is on maybe crypto and versus USD and US kind of traditional financial system? 
Uh, I, I think it depends on who you talk to within the mm-hmm. organization. Um, I mean, I, I think people who are in crypto forget that they're still like part of the 1% who actually get it, right? And and they're yeah. like really bought yeah. in. Um, like I talked about crypto when I was in Alaska quite a bit. And like, I found like my club, right? Like, oh, yeah. th- these three people <laughs> also believe in it and understand it at least enough to have a conversation over a drink. Um, and we were a large organization. So I, I, I wouldn't say most financial institutions have fully grasped it. They, they know that they want to be part of it, right? So like they believe in giving consumers um, the power, right? At least the organizations mm-hmm. that I've talked to and like the, the credit union I was mentioning before, uh, I don't know if you've heard of NIDIG or if you've interviewed anybody from NIDIG, but no. it, it's basically crypto. Yeah, I recommend you. I'll, I'll connect you with somebody, but. Yeah, um, do it. So NIDIG just raised a billion dollar round and nobody's heard of them. And it's because they went out and contacted all the financial institutions and said, do you want to offer crypto assets tied to checking and savings accounts? And I believe the press release said that they had 680 financial institutions sign up, right? So like that, that's a massive amount of interest from the incumbents in the U.S. saying, we know our consumers want to use this. It's also important to know that like the banks who are large enough to have enough people like in data science and data warehousing, they can see that they can see your Coinbase transactions, right? Or like your... <laughs> Like what? Really? How? Well, yeah, because you're moving your assets. You're moving your your you're buying crypto using your card account. Oh, you're moving it from the bank to Coinbase. Yeah. So when yeah, you when yeah. you wire ten thousand dollars, you can buy a fifth of a Bitcoin. They see their deposits just left the financial institution right. to a third party company. So Coinbase today, um, or like crypto in general, is a threat because it's taking assets away from the financial institution and the financial institution lends against their assets, right? So just yep. like um, just like mortgages, like had Zillow and or some of these lending companies that, that are more like online, you know, lending companies, had they like taken over the entire mortgage process, that would like kill the financial institutions of America because that's where mm-hmm. they make the majority of their money. Um, however, most people don't know that 60% of all mortgages in the United States are actually underwritten and held by a credit union. Um, so mm-hmm. crypto, even though it's in its infancy, we are seeing a, a massive and very like quick shift from the C-suite and executives at these financial institutions saying, we want to participate. We just can't do it ourselves. So we need a technology provider to like come hold our hand and introduce us. That way we can white label this for our consumers. And just like we're doing for BNPL, there are companies like NYDIG doing that for for crypto. And so in the NYDIG case, they would be saying, hey, you don't even have to move money outside your your checking account. You just move it. You just buy this Bitcoin asset. And I'm sure the way that NYDIG does it is they're they're, uh, making a transaction on the other side. They're saying, hey, we'll credit you you know, the equivalent of a fifth of a Bitcoin that you can hold in your, your checking account. Meanwhile, you don't have to maintain ownership of the keys or you don't get to, however you want to look at that. You don't sure. you don't have the risk of like losing it, um, which is a significant risk for a lot of people. You know, they feel like I don't want to maintain this this key because if I lose it, then I'm out my savings, which is, it's, it's, it's that, that scares a lot of people away. They like the idea of, hey, it's safe in the checking account. It's I trust it. It's FDIC insured or backed by the government or just backed by a large organization. And so if you don't have to even move it into Coinbase, then Coinbase probably doesn't love that. But good. I mean, that's competition that then helps helps consumers adopt it and, and change it all, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you can look back at like when P2P was in its infancy, right? Like when Venmo popped up and, okay, I yeah. want to build like a March Madness pool. How do I give my buddy 20 bucks? He lives in Ohio. And then he sends me like an email, like, hey, download this app. And they're like, okay, I guess I'll move some deposits there because I'm like 19 and I want to gamble, right? So like yeah. Yeah. for for us, like older millennial, uh, like Venmo was not scary to us, but to my parents, like in 2016, my parents weren't downloading apps like Venmo and just like moving their 
Chase deposits and credit unit deposits yeah. to this Venmo yeah. account. But when Zelle added a button to online banking and said, hey, do you want to yeah. send anybody in the US 50 bucks? Just click this button from your checking account. All of a sudden, P2P became fully democratized and every generation was using it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think people are undervaluing what's going to happen to crypto when every financial institution starts offering at, at a minimum asset holdings, like the ability to buy, hold, and sell uh, like the the staples, right? Like the Ethereum and, and, and Bitcoin. I think it's going to be a monumental shift of the n- number of holders that uh, exist from all generations. Yeah, yeah. Because it's still not easy. You know, even like Coinbase is kind of expensive and it's still the, the wire transfer part of it. You have to wait multiple days. Then you have to get like learn Coinbase, which is a whole new interface and like buy it and just understanding conceptually what you're buying and how it's held. It's like, it's a big ask for a lot of people. And I find that I'm sure you'd agree with this, but your your club of people that you were hanging out with, getting a drink, talking about Bitcoin, it's largely age skewed. You know, the younger 100%. people get it, right? And And it's like, it's kind of it's kind of almost a it's a generational trans transfer of wealth in in some sense. It's like this is how the last generation used <laughs> to do it, and this is how we're going to do it. And it's like it, it it's an evolution of how things are done. It's uh, kind of a march towards more efficiency uh, and f- better, faster. It's like I mean. The whole the benefits of crypto just move money anywhere across the world twenty four seven for ideally a fraction of what you would pay using Western Union or banks. It's like that's awesome, you know. And it's it's it doesn't click right away. I think if you're older, because you're like, well, this is you just take reality as something that's immutable, and it's like, well, these Chase is so powerful, you know. The U.S. government prints all the money; they're never going to change. It's like I don't know, it's like. This whole country is not that old. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if the U.S. dollar is not that relevant in ten years, fifteen years. Like, maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe you really do use Bitcoin, use you know other crypto to make transactions. Like, it 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 wouldn't be that crazy. We'd still be hanging out in this podcast. Like, life wouldn't be all that much different. So I, I don't know. I I, I increasingly become more clear that that is going to happen in the near term and is happening. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's important to remember where assets actually live generationally, s- specific to the U.S., right? Like people between 40 and 65 hold almost all the wef- wealth in the U.S. right now. Wow. And, and, and those people are still going to be living like 20 years from now. And I don't know about you, and, and this is just me like playing devil's advocate here, but like my parents, getting them to just like, try a new flavor of ice cream at their age. (laughs) It's like pulling teeth, right? Yeah. So like getting them to like switch who holds their money and how they transact with their money. Like I have an aunt and I I love her to death, but like she's still writing checks. Like she doesn't even use a bank debit card. Right. And and she, and she's not like, she's not even retirement age yet. Like she's, I think she's like 60 or 61. And if you're listening, sorry. Um, But, but like, there are millions and millions of people holding hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth in the U.S. that probably will never adopt crypto. Well, it, I, the only thing I can <clears throat> that comes to mind is there has to be a pressure. Like the, the checkbook works fine. Like why change it if it's not broken? But I think the inflation. I think inflation to me seems like the one thing that could really pressure people into looking for alternatives. Like if there, if we really do hit sustained, you know, 10, 15, 20%, 30% year over year inflation, people may look for alternatives. We do a lot of business down in South America and Argentina has like, it's like 50% inflation year over year. Like, and people just adapt to this. It's just like sure. everyone gets a 50% raise. Everything is 50% more expensive. <laughs> and that is not how things have been in the US for, you know, at least a couple of generations. So maybe that's the pressure or maybe people just get on with it. But if you're older, you're likely not, you're not focused on making money the way you are when you're younger. You're focused on keeping money. And to keep money, you have to avoid inflation. So I could, I could see that being a factor in how people distribute more into crypto. 
I don't know. Do you have a, does that seem to resonate with you? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's actually going to be more regulatory driven as well. Um, you know, having the bodies that are the trusted sources of the financial lives of the, you know, Gen X and, and boomers, uh, boomer generation, having trusted people say, this is okay. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. Uh, having the feds uh, say, yes, this is proven. And then starting to integrate those into more like the actual daily transactions of people's lives, which is real. like, you know, the average debit card user spends eleven to $13,000 a year on their debit card. And I've been in crypto actually for a long time because I, I was an online poker player before I even got into fintech. So back, oh, no way. back when the Fed shut online poker down, like Bitcoin was the only way we could move money on and off of a lot of these sites. And, um, and yet, and I even have like a crypto.com, you know, card so I can get high rewards and all that. But I still have yet to like fully convert to using crypto as daily purchases, right? Because I want to hold, because I, I, I want mm-hmm. to experience that because of my age, I want my wealth to build and I'm using crypto as more of like an asset uh, versus a transactional. So I, I think there's just like so many moving parts in it. I agree with you. There's got to be some moment in time that that um, shifts to where now it's more transactional and it's baked into the infrastructure of how we actually do commerce in the United States. I think that's when our generation and younger will start to use it on everyday items and then getting like mortgages and auto loans and checking accounts and savings accounts and IRAs to start to uh, shift into big, into crypto. I think that's when you're actually going to see a way more of a monumental push into that into this asset class because that's where the majority of the wealth actually sits. Like uh, how much money is spent on Visa cards today is about five trillion dollars in the U.S. Um, wow. And that's, you know, U.S. like debit and credit. But then there's 10x that in, in um, like secondaries on mortgages, right? So how do we get all of those assets to shift over? Like that, that's going to take some federal movement, the banks getting behind it, which you're starting to see that, but it's still pretty in its infancy right now. And or, or what, what do you think this is feasible where similar to prior to Alaska being a state 73 years ago, these people got together and pooled money and created a credit union. Well, I'm seeing that happen in crypto where people are pooling together and creating a protocol that people can lend into and borrow from. And so now if I'm buying a house, maybe I'm considering, especially if the Fed raises interest rates, inflation's high, and I have most of my money in crypto, maybe I'm saying, well, why don't I take out this $300,000 $300,000 loan from Aave or Compound or some decentralized protocol instead of the bank. Because it's, it's really pretty competitive. Like, you know, I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I borrowed from for this car and with mortgage too, you're, you're, you're looking at all the different rates like bankrate.com and these sites that offer comparisons. Like it's not long and maybe they even do it today where they just offer in, okay, what would it cost you to get this loan on a decentralized protocol? And if the loans are better, like even a fraction better, sure, you know, 20 basis points, 50 basis points, then it's like, okay, then the, then the scales tip and people are, because it really comes down to who, who's, who can produce the better products, who can produce lower interest loans um, sustainably over time. The challenge there would be like, well, yeah, the challenge there is how <clears throat> how how the loan is assessed because right now you have to put up collateral yeah. to get a loan out. Uh, well, they also have to so validate like you have a job, how much money yeah. do you earn, where does that money go, do you have good cash flow, what's your debt-to-income ratio, right? So like to successfully underwrite something as large as a mortgage... You know, me just moving like $100,000 yeah. into like a, a locked crypto account is not enough for somebody to underwrite me successfully because I could just, I could have won the lottery for $100,000 scratch off, thrown it into a DeFi account and then went and bought a $500,000 yeah. home. So th- th- there will still be some type of one KYC, but then also like the actual underwriting process. And I'm sure that there's a ton of like DeFi type of projects spinning up that are trying to solve this right now, but it's still a pretty major gap. 
just run, run with me for a minute. I don't know. I haven't thought this through, but so I, I think of what you said as a kind of a centralized digging, you know, KYC, debt to income ratio. You're like digging in. One person is doing an investigation into one person. You know, the bank is diving into your personal financial sure. history. What if it, could this work where <laughs> it's like, okay, um, Bryce wants to get a loan from a decentralized protocol. How do we determine if we give Bryce a loan? Well, traditionally you would dive deep on everything we just said, but maybe instead we look at what are what's Bryce's network? Like give us 10 people, 15 people, 20 people who can validate uh, who can effectively do like uh, outsource underwriting with some stake in the game. So, you know, your best friend growing up, he's watched you his whole life and he, you say to him, hey, can you give me some validation on this protocol to get this loan? And it costs him something. Maybe he has to, he has a finite number of like reputational points or, uh, you know, maybe money, but I think more like something softer effectively what i what i'm triangulating on is that you can make a decision about someone's ability to repay based on their 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 past but you could also make a decision based on uh the people that they know that say this is a person that's likely to repay like i there's some people that in my life that i look at them like man i wouldn't lend this 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 guy 50 bucks, right? I know he's not going to pay it back. He, sure. He's just reputationally, like I know he's not. Uh, I don't know how you would build that, but it does seem like a potential way that you could also make an intelligent decision on a loan. I don't know if any of that made sense, but... Well, I, I, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to that <laughs> metadata layer, right? Like, yeah, I mm-hmm. think that there's, you could use that as like ancillary capabilities of underwriting but you know my brain always because i've been in this space for like the lending and underwriting space for so long i go into like what happens if bryce is like 90 days past due and now we need to like foreclose on this property or like go collect that car that he's been driving around without paying his bill like who's going to do that in a, in a fully decentralized right so like I, I guess what i'm saying is those are all opportunities for companies to come in and say mm-hmm. hey we're going to solve that piece but when you start thinking through like the, the entire life cycle of lending, um, there's a lot there that's been built up over decades and decades by the biggest financial institutions on the planet that has to be replaced in order for it to be a sound business decision for a group of people pulling together their crypto assets to to underwrite to somebody. And today, I don't know of a like mortgage-backed security, it, like maybe it does exist, but I, I don't know one that's like sp- specific to like underwriting using crypto assets. And then how am I making my payments? Am I also paying in crypto? Do you accept fiat? Like where is my funding source coming from, from my payroll company? Mm. So like it, I, th- there has to be some type of monumental shift that like moves it over from fiat to where now, okay, mm-hmm. now I'm getting paid in crypto. I'm paying out in crypto. The underwriting company is also... A, a blockchain c- crypto company. So I, I agree that this will happen. It's just how long. Yeah. There, there's yeah, so many how exactly pieces does it do it? to the economy that most people who haven't worked in finance, um, they don't understand like how many different layers there are that, that need to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, you do. So valuable insight. <laughs> um, and where, where are you guys in terms of uh, progress? Have you mentioned that? You've, it looks like publicly you've raised a few million, looks mm-hmm. like three publicly. Uh, how big is the team? And uh, I guess, how are you measure progress, like revenue or customers or whatever? However you think about that? Yeah, so when we raised the, the few million bucks, um, we didn't have a, a shippable product yet. It was basically just like a, a prototype. So we've used wow. that to build out the product. And uh, we're taking our first few customers live in the first quarter this year. So like mm-hmm. in the next 60 days. Um, and when we announced the raise in October is when people knew we existed. And since then, we've had over 50 financial institutions reach out um, asking if, awesome. they, if they can participate. So we, how, still- how was the raise? Without, without, sorry to cut you off there, but how how was the race without having a product? That's an unusual circumstance, but you're kind of in an unusual business model. Yeah. Um, Honestly, it came together really quick. 
um, we, we ended up telling 23 investors who wanted to participate that we ran out of room within, within the seed round. Um, and yeah, the, the raise was good. It, it's mainly because I was helping build out product roadmaps for multiple financial institutions at my last role. So I also sat on like a product advisory board for a, one of the major infrastructure payment companies uh, in the U.S. And when I told them, hey, I think I'm going to leave my role in Alaska and build this startup around this one product, several of them raised their hand and said, once you have that, we'll adopt it. So mm. I, had, I we had already made sales before we even had a product, I guess is what I'm really trying to say. Uh, and right. the this is like very high-level enterprise SaaS. So onboarding one customer can be hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in annual recurring revenue. And mm. the thing about banks too is like once they have a product that is live, especially a consumer-facing product that's fully baked in their online banking, banks don't rip out these products. In fact, like we just had a bank request a five-year agreement, not a three-year agreement. Um, and wow. we we didn't even, like I had to go and like redo our agreement because we didn't have a five-year option. Um, but but it's just it's just a different style of game, I guess, in the financial. In, yeah, it, like yeah. if we take over the market, very similar to Zelle did in the P two P space. Like we're talking a thousand financial institutions that will likely adopt our platform for for decades, not not three years or four years. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's pretty compelling from an investor standpoint. So I imagine just industry people, you reach out to people with that message. And check started rolling in. Yeah, I mean, we were able to put together the round in in about thirty days. Um, you know, it was we we had some pretty cool like fintech early early stage like SaaS ventures, new stack ventures out of Chicago actually led our round. He has a great podcast too. Um, mm. Rise of the Rests participated as well. Revolution, Steve Case, and um, but then we also raised some capital from a firm out of St. Louis called Six Thirty that their LPs are actually banks and credit unions. That uh, awesome. it, yeah, it's it's their fun too. So we kind of have had a good mix of investors. Nice. Well, congrats, man. I wish you guys all the best. Uh, love what you're building. Where are you online? Do you use the social networks or blog or? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm the worst of this. I I have I know I have a Twitter account, but I couldn't tell you my handle. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, you can like add me on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm the only Bryce Dini uh, on the planet right now, so that, that's pretty easy to find. And then obviously we have a LinkedIn, and we do have a Twitter account on uh, for Equipify. Um, it's just at Equipify. Yeah, cool, awesome, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you.